0: The sermon text for today is found in Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1575. Listen as I read God's word. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to see you. He replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. Earlier this week, we updated the staff portion of our website because we now have uh, Dave Hammond with us as our director of Next Gen Ministry and our pastoral resident, and so we did the sort of, you know, the formality of updating all of our uh, wonderful looking pictures. They're not showing up. No. No. It doesn't work. The pictures were great, I promise. That's so disappointing. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, yeah, I, that's the one I wanted to show was the like jumping picture? Whatever. I'll show it next week. I promise. So come back next week and you'll see a great picture of our staff team. It's wonderful. Well, now that we're off to such a great start, Oh Lord, have mercy. Uh, we need to pray. (laughs) So let's, uh, come before the Lord in prayer this morning. God, this morning we come before you and we ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that we may live a life worthy of you and please you in every way, bearing fruits in every good work, growing in the knowledge of you, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might so that we may have great endurance and patience giving joyful thanks to you, our Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of your holy people in the kingdom of light. You, God, have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God, we ask that as we come before this passage today that you would, exactly as Paul prays here, that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus, that you would help us to understand this passage rightly, and that you would help us grow in our understanding and our awareness of and our practice of what it means to live as brothers and sisters. We ask for the special work of your Spirit. Right now in this moment, uh, we trust that he is able to illuminate what is in the Bible for us. We know that he is able to help us see and understand the beauty of the cross. And so we ask that you would direct our attention towards Jesus this morning. We ask in his name. Amen. When it comes to family, the word normal is entirely relative. We all grow up thinking that our family is quote unquote normal. And that is only because we have no other experience of family outside of our own biological family. That's all we know. But then as we grow older and as you maybe go over to your friend's house, you maybe go over to a friend's house for maybe either just like a hangout or for some sort of slumber party or you, you have experiences with other people's families and you start to see the way that other people do it. And you start to see the way that other people, oh, this is how they relate to one another. Oh, this is how they talk to each other. And you begin to see that outside of your own family, there's other ways of doing it. And what becomes very obvious very quickly is that your family is weird. And also, every other family is weird too. Right? All families are quirky. All families are weird. All families have areas of dysfunction and unhealth. And of course, some have more than others. Let's be honest about that. But the point is that there is no such thing as a quote-unquote normal family. I think this is part of why we gravitate uh, so much towards sitcoms. You can go all the way back to sitcoms like I Love Lucy or The Cosby Show or one of my favorites, The Fresh Prince of (laughs) Bel-Air. I will spare you the certain trauma of rapping the intro to that song (laughs) because I'm pretty sure I know all the words to it, but you'd all like get up and walk out, so I won't do that. Uh, Then there was like the cheesy Christian mid-90s sitcom, Seventh Heaven. Remember that one? Uh, There's all sorts of these sitcoms, right? This is uh, part of the reason why The Simpsons is the longest running animated show like in history is because you get like a window into this like super dysfunctional family and all of their like dysfunctional happenings. It's why we are so drawn to sort of the newer uh, brand of sitcoms, whether it's Arrested Development or Home Improvement or Modern Family or reality shows. They like literally stick a camera inside of someone's home and you get to like watch them and how they relate to one another. And you get to see all of what it is to like live in their family. Whether it's, you know, the Kardashians, which I've literally never seen in my life, but I know it's a thing to, uh, there's there's one called, uh, I think it's called 19 and Counting. Uh, This family called the Duggars is like this super conservative Baptist family, and they have 19 children. The show started out as like 16 and counting, (laughs) and then it kept changing names as they had more kids. And, you know, so we get to like watch into the lives and the families of these people. And part of the reason why shows like this so grab our attention and are so compelling is because we can so easily identify with what is the beautiful mess of family, Right? Family is beautiful. Family is wonderful. There's so many uh, marvelous things about family. And also, family is kind of a hot mess. And family is difficult. And family is messy. And so we just are instinctively, like, we get it. And so we're so attracted to shows like this. We've been in a series of messages here on Sunday morning thinking together about our identity in Christ. And what we have been sort of exploring together is we've taken our identity in Christ and like compiled it. We've sort of condensed it down into, we've simplified it into three sort of main identities. And I'm going to do a little pop quiz right now for you to see if y'all remember. So the first is what? We are sons and daughters, right? We are brothers and sisters, right? And third, we are neighbors and witnesses. Yeah, excellent. Good work. Uh, we've been in this series thinking about those identities, and we spent the last two weeks looking at how we are sons and daughters of God, and we're going to spend the next two weeks, including today, thinking about how we are brothers and sisters. Now, these two identities of sons and daughters and brothers and sisters are like uniquely and uh, deeply connected, right? Because what makes us sons and daughters is also what makes us brothers and sisters, right? If, If you're someone's son or daughter, that is what makes you a brother or sister of someone else who is a son or daughter of the same parents. And so as we think about this in relationship to uh, to God, what we see is that being a son or daughter of God by default makes us brothers and sisters of one another. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, who are sons and daughters of God, we are also by default brothers and sisters of one another. And so we're going to spend the next, uh, bit of time here this morning thinking about what it means uh, to live as brothers and sisters. And as we look at these uh, two very brief verses, three verses that we heard read this morning, we're going to just sort of uh, ponder together one way that our identity as brothers and sisters expresses itself. Okay? So one way that our identity as brothers and sisters expresses itself. And it expresses itself in this, the reordering of our lives around a new set of relationships. Our identity as brothers and sisters expresses itself in our life in the form of the reordering of our lives around a new set of relationships. For us to see really the impact of Jesus' words here in this passage, we have to sort of pull back for a moment and recognize some of the cultural differences that exist between our particular cultural environment here in the modern Western world and the way that the world was in the day of Jesus's life and ministry. And actually there's parts of the world today that shares a lot of the same values and a lot and look very similar to Jesus's day. So you go places like Asia or places in Africa and there's much, uh, their culture uh, today looks very much like Jesus's Jesus's day. But we're going to sort of uh, look at how our culture is different than theirs. And that's where we see the significance of what Jesus says here. And the only way that I've been able to really combobulate this in my mind, the the best way I've thought of, is to think of this as like diverging arrows, right? That starts in the same place and then diverges. So just go with me on this. What's true of all of us, what all of us have in common, is that we are born and nurtured in our biological family. Now, I understand that that's not always the case whether it's adoption or whether there's some other circumstances that would lead you to be uh, parented or raised by someone who's not your biological mother or father, totally get that. But for most of human history, in most places, in most times, this is the norm. And the reality is that we are all born and nurtured into our biological family. And as our family nurtures us, we are nurtured into one of two sort of broad directions. The first direction that we can uh, identify as Uh, being, my goodness, my slides are all out of order. I'm so sorry. (laughs) So that's the big idea. Um, We could be moved towards this individually oriented type of way of being in the world. So we're born into our biological family, and we are then raised into a sort of individually oriented way of life. Uh, So what that means is that we grow older, and eventually what happens is we become independent from our biological families, from our families of origin. In fact, this is part of, in our specific cultural environment, part of the mark of being an adult is that you have independence from your biological family, right? You have relational, you have financial independence. That's a part of what it means to be a grown adult and to be seen as someone who is mature. And this is why there's a, you may have noticed the, the stereotype against people who still live with their parents. Right? The stereotype of like the person who, quote-unquote, lives in their parents' basement, which is a like really derogatory way of talking about someone who's like not made it in life, who needs the financial or you know, relational support of their parents because they can't cut it on their own. And so there's this like negative perception of people who still live with their parents because we value independence from our family of origin so much. Of course, there's times when people would move back in with their parents for various life circumstances, but if you or your family does ever move back in with your parents, it's virtually always a concession. It's virtually always because something has exploded in your life where like you lost your job or you uh, lost your housing or some like crisis happens and you don't have any other choice. And so you say, well, I don't have anywhere else to go. My parents will take me, so we'll, I'll go back to my parents' house right? But then the entire time you are at your parents' house, you're constantly thinking about, well, how do I get out of my parents' house? <laughs> how do I get like back into my own place? How does my family get some distance? And that's just, we just have to recognize that it's a part of, that is just built into our understanding of what it means to be a functional adult, is that you have independence from your family. We live in a very uh, sort of individualistic type society where we highly value this sort of independence. But this is not the way that Jesus's culture was. So we are born and nurtured into our biological family, and our families sort of nurture us into either an individualistically oriented way of life or into a more community-oriented way of life. And this is far more the case in Jesus's day than it is in ours. Jesus lived in a community, family-oriented society, which meant sort of at, at, the, at the base level, that the good of the community took priority over the good of the individual. That the needs and the wants and the desires of the community took priority was more important generally than the needs and the, and the wants and the desires of the individual. Which is, of course, the exact opposite of the way that we live. Right? We live in like a you-do-you-bro type environment. And, you know, whatever makes you happy, doesn't matter if it hurts other people around you, doesn't matter, you know, what the fallout is, you have to be true to yourself. And so we, we highly prize and value the individual person, whereas they valued the community over the individual person. Not to the exclusion of the individual person, but they thought through the lens of community first, then individual. And so within this particular cultural environment... In the day of Jesus, in his life and ministry, a person's highest relational priority was to their biological family. Your highest relational priority was to your biological family, but specifically to your brothers and sisters. And that priority and that relationship, that extended beyond the time when you got married and had a family of your own. It was the case uh, very often that people would live in households together meaning that there would be mom and dad and one or more of their children and their families would live together in the same household unit with grandmas and grandpas or aunts and uncles or whoever else was there. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, this is common in other parts of the world. But it's unusual to us. But this is the way that uh, the society around Jesus operated. And this is so important for us to understand what it is that Jesus is saying here. In our particular context, you may love your family no matter what. And I think we would all say, you know, this person is, they're irritating or they're just weird or I don't get along with them, but you know what? They're my family. So I'm going to love them no matter what, right? We all have that. Like we love our family no matter what. But the difference is that that doesn't for us necessarily mean that our family is our highest relational priority. Or that we will orient or organize our lives around our family. But that's exactly what it meant in Jesus's day. And so we just have to sort of recognize that there's different ways of living. Different cultural environments. We live in one that's very different than the cultural environment in which Jesus lived and ministered. And so we just have to recognize these differences. And of course, each of these, the individually oriented and the community oriented way of life, those I'm not here making a value judgment necessarily saying that one is like better than the other. Both of those have really great things about them. And both of them have downsides to them. So I'm not here, you know, saying we need to go back to, or, you know, have a sort of, you know, a different way of thinking about things necessarily. I'm just pointing this out to say, this is, this is the environment in which Jesus lived and ministered. And for us to understand the significance and the importance of Jesus using family language, we have to understand these differences in culture. And as we do, we'll begin to see just how explosive Jesus's words are here in this passage. Now, Jesus's mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. So get the picture here of Jesus, as he often does, is in a household. He's in some sort of a house and there's a crowd of people that, as as is often the case, are gathered around Jesus and they're listening to him teach. And it's like people are just like packed into this house, right? They're standing room only. People are like spilling out into the yard outside of the place. And there's people that are probably pressing in, you know, standing on their tippy toes to try and see Jesus or trying to, you know, hear what he's saying. And so there's all these people around Jesus. And actually we're told in, in, in Mark's retelling of these same events, Mark tells us that Jesus was so consumed with the needs of the crowd that he didn't even take care of his own physical needs right? Jesus was like not eating, not taking care of himself. And so he's, he's prioritizing the good of the community over even his own needs. And he's just pouring himself out. And so that's where we see Jesus's mother and brothers, his mother and his siblings came to see him. But of course they couldn't get near him because the crowd was so big. And so they sent word in, you know, sort of little Ancient Mediterranean telephone, send word in through the people. And Jesus hears that your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And Jesus replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. So what Jesus is doing here is he is forming a new family. What Jesus is doing here is he is redefining what true family actually is. And he's saying, my my true family... Is not defined only by or exclusively by biology. Those who are members of my family are anyone and everyone who hears the word of God and puts it into practice. So he's he's reorienting his life around this new family, and he's forming this new family together with his disciples and with anyone and everyone who hears his words and puts them into practice. Now, we've got to be really clear about this, lest we uh, jump to some conclusions about what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not disowning his family. Okay? Jesus is not um, saying that his family doesn't matter. He's not disowning them. He's not replacing his family. He's not saying, okay, well, you know, those group of people out there, they used to be my family, but now you're my family instead of you. He's not disowning his family. He's not replacing his family. What he's doing is he's extending the priority and he's extending the allegiance that a person would have for their biological family to those who are members of the family of God. That's the significance. If he takes the language of the strongest relational ties that existed in their culture and says, anyone who hears the word of God and puts it into practice is my sibling. We're a part of the same family. And by extension, that means that anyone and everyone who hears the word of God and puts it into practice, we're not just siblings of Jesus. We are then siblings of one another. And so he's redefining family. He's forming a new family by extending the priority and allegiance that a person would have for their biological family to the family of God. If we take Jesus' word seriously, it's going to fundamentally reorder our lives and our relationships. If we take Jesus' words here seriously, it's going to fundamentally reorder our lives and our relationships around our brothers and sisters in the family of God. Especially in the West, what we have to remember is that God gave us the family of the church as a gift for our formation. God gave us the family of the church, he gave us each other as brothers and sisters As a gift for our formation. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who would say or who believe that it's possible to have a life that is fully devoted to God. Separate from the church. Right? Like we can have all the benefits of being sons and daughters of God and all the, you know, wonderful aspects of that. But then the stuff about being brothers and sisters is like an optional thing. I don't have to be really engaged with other followers of Jesus. I don't need to, in, in any way, shape, or form, belong to a local church. You know, I can, I can just have me and Jesus. And if there's margin left over, maybe I'll get involved in a local church. If I can find a good one, maybe I'll get involved in a local church. But, but the, the priority is me and Jesus. Right? Again, you see how that is an expression of the more individualistic way that we tend to sort of view and live in the world. But that way of thinking is not at all in Jesus' realm of thinking. It's not at all in the realm of possibility. Some people believe that it's possible to have a life fully devoted to God apart from the church, and whether they do that uh, explicitly, would say that, or just implicitly or sort of functionally believe that, what they believe is that it's possible to be sons and daughters without also being brothers and sisters. And I'm not here to, you know, like throw rocks at people that would lean that direction. Um, To be honest with you, I feel really bad for people who believe that. Because that way of thinking is so small. And that way of thinking cuts off so much of what God wants to do in their life through their brothers and sisters in the church. God has better for us. In his all-knowing goodness, God has not only rescued us out of our sin as individuals, although he's done that, right? It's not less than an individual experience we have of God's grace and his forgiveness and his mercy, but it's more than that. He has not just brought us out of our sin. He's brought us and rescued us into a new family. He's rescued us out of our sin and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Into the kingdom of God, into this new community and this new family called the church. That is God's all-knowing sovereign wisdom at work. Is that he brought us into this weird, oftentimes messy organization, organism called the church. And the church is the mechanism that God uses to form us into the image of Christ. That's not the only thing that God does. You know, that's not the only method or the only means he uses to transform us. But so much of God's transforming work in us is through this thing called the church. And yes, the church is messy. Yes, the church is complicated. And the church is disappointing. And the church is frustrating. And the church is hard. And the church is filled with people like you and me who make the church messy and difficult and hard and frustrating. Right, The reason the church is frustrating is because of people like us. (laughs) But that's exactly the point, is that we are people who have been saved by God's mercy, not because of how good we are, not because of how good our lives look and how great we are at everything. We have been saved because we recognize how badly we need the mercy and grace of God. And so you take a bunch of people who are like recovering self-centered people, who care nothing? Care about nothing except for themselves and you put them together in the family of the church and what do you think is going to happen? Some sparks are going to fly, right? There's going to be times and places where the church is so hurtful or so disappointing and you may look around at the church sort of broadly in our country or the world and say, man, we're just missing it on this or on this or on this and that may be true. And the good news is that we are not in the church because we have it all put together. We're a part of the church because we don't. That is the thing that qualifies us to be sitting here together is that we don't have it all figured out. This church thing that we're a part of is really messy, is really complicated, can be really difficult. And in God's all-knowing wisdom, this is the means, you all are the means that God uses to shape our lives together into the image of Christ. Through this thing called the church, as messy and as complicated as it is, that is how God is forming us and shaping us into the image of Christ. That is how God is continuing to actively accomplish our good. And if we miss out, if we choose not to live as family, if we choose to take you know all the wonderful good things about being sons and daughters, and then we choose to like neglect all the stuff about being brothers and sisters, if we choose to live that way, we forfeit a significant part of God's work in us. Do you know that? That if you choose, if we choose to sort of keep each other at arm's length, if we choose to not really engage one another in anything beyond just like the surface of like, hey, are the Vikings going to lose today? Well, probably. (laughs) Probably. If we choose to not get anywhere deeper than just those kinds of things, we are forfeiting a significant part of God's formative work in our lives to shape us into the image of Christ. And that goes the opposite way as well. Right? Not only does God use the other people who are a part of the church to work on you, right, to shape you and to form you into the image of Christ, in his mercy, God has given you as a gift to the other people who are a part of the church. Not just Elmwood Church here locally, but the church. God has given us each other so that we might be together formed into the image of Christ. So God gave us the family of the church as a gift for our formation. My hope this morning is that we would simply leave here today with just catching a vision for what God could do in and through us as members of this new family. Now, to be really clear about this, again, I don't want to belabor this, but I also don't want to get emails, right? Right? Uh, By saying that we now live with a priority of the relationship of our brothers and sisters, that does not mean that we neglect our biological family. It does not mean that we uh, burn ourselves out, you know, just giving and giving and giving to the work of the local church. It doesn't mean that at all. That has to be taken into consideration with a significant amount of wisdom asking, Okay, where does my family unit, what part does that play in my life? What part does my local church play in my life? How do those relationships function? How do I maintain healthy balance? How do I maintain healthy boundaries and relationships? All of that is like a thing we have to work out in wisdom, okay? So I'm not saying that like you need to abandon your family and then, you know, give everything to the church. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there is something beautiful that God has for us together as family in the context of the church. And if we view it only as, if we view it as a competition between God's family and my family, I think something's fundamentally wrong with how we're viewing the church. And I think it shows we have just a small vision for the church and for our brothers and sisters and what God can do through them and through us in each other's lives. So my hope this morning is that we would simply catch a vision for the beauty of life together in the family of God. We get to come this morning and remember and celebrate the very way that God made us brothers and sisters. And that is through the cross, right? It's the same thing. The same thing makes us sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. God himself took on flesh and joined us in our humanity. He suffered and he died for us on the cross So that we could be made alive to the things of God. So that we could be given new life. So that we could be given a new identity as sons and daughters. And also a new identity as brothers and sisters. And so it's the work of Jesus on our behalf that makes us into this new family. Did you know that the night before Jesus died, he celebrated a meal with his disciples. And it was the Passover meal you know we're we're very used to seeing pictures of the last supper and you know we're used to hearing maybe the liturgy of uh, the communion table and the lord's supper read from the gospels and, and it just it doesn't strike us as weird or strange at all that jesus is there with his disciples because that's all we know what should strike us is that the passover meal was to be celebrated within your household that's the instructions that god gave was that you would celebrate Passover together with your family and with your extended family within your household. And so think of how significant it is, not only that Jesus goes around saying things like, whoever does, hears God's word and puts it into practice is now my brother and sister. He not only says things like that, but then on that Passover night before he was executed, he took those disciples away from their biological families and celebrated that significant meal, the most significant meal in Israel's history, he celebrated that together with these disciples as a new family who is not brought together by, you know, how many chromosomes you share. They're not brought together by their biology necessarily. They're brought together around Jesus, who is what the Passover meal looks forward to, right? Jesus is the lamb, the Passover lamb, that the Passover meal leaves us anticipating, And so Jesus took this group of men from their biological families on that night in order to remake them into this new family and then he, after that, sent them out. Not only this, but Jesus, as he is hanging on the cross, he's in physical and emotional and spiritual agony in ways that we will never know. He's hanging there and his mother is standing at the foot of the cross, And the disciple John is there with his mother. And in the midst of what was probably the worst thing that Jesus and his mother have ever experienced in their lives. In the midst of the worst thing that they've ever experienced, Jesus looks down and he says, this is now your son. And he looks at John and says, this is now your mother. And it says that he took Jesus' mother into his own household from that time on. So Jesus, at the foot of the cross, is turning these people who don't have the same biological markers, he's taking them and he's making them into family. He's saying there is a truer kind of family that exists than just biology. And so Jesus, through the communion table, is forming a new family. And then Jesus, at the cross, is forming a new family. And these are the rhythms that we go through every single week here at Elmwood, where we come to the communion table. And we look at the cross and we sit at the foot of the cross. And this isn't just something that we get to experience as individuals, right? Like, we don't turn down the lights and make it so that it's like you and, you know, everyone else around you is just sort of like off the map. They're not even here. It's just you and Jesus. And you get to come forward and receive communion for you. The lights are on so that you can look around and see all of the other people that are now your family because of what Jesus did for us that we celebrate at communion, We are a family together, whether we want to be or not. Sometimes we want to be family more than other times. Let's be real. But we have been brought together into the same family. And it's the communion table and it's the cross that not only make us into family, but also they form us and they shape us as family. And it's the way of the communion table. It's the way of the cross that teaches us how to live as members of this new family. We'll be thinking more about that next week. But for this morning, we get to come and remember and celebrate that God has made us into this new family at the cross and around the communion table. As we do each week, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silence for confession, for reflection. If there's anything that you heard this morning that you need to sort of just uh, bring before the Lord or process or pray through, I want to just allow a few moments of space for that, uh, for confession or reflection, and then we will come together and celebrate Christ at the table as one church family.